folks, speaking of doing things, let's get back into the office. And I don't know if Barry's going to include that last part. Otherwise, that beginning doesn't make any sense. But let's keep moving. So <laughs> I'll find are, something. <laughs> we are back in the office <laughs> with Mr. John McQueen joining us Hello. from the illustrious Arizona State University, which is a big friggin deal. Like as far as like in comm studies, like I don't know if you know this, but in communication studies, like ASU is a, a pretty big school. <laughs> so, big school anyway, 144,000. Oh. Yeah just just absolutely nuts anyway so we are continuing our, our conversation related to sociology and marketing by talking about something in particular that you've discussed in our private conversations and that is passion points which yes. i don't know that's an interesting terminology i haven't heard before but i think you equated it to what i'm familiar with which is psychographic marketing or at least in the same realm of things so without further ado john why don't you give us a sort of a bird's eye view of what passion points are. Sure, I feel like the best way to do, and this is what I do in my lectures too, right, is to make sure I say it properly. So if you look for the basic principles, right, it's mapping out the entire character of your audience, focusing on what they are, guessing what they're passionate about, right? So, and when mm -hmm. you had told me about psychographic marketing, I immediately looked into what you were asking because I had used that terms, but the exact same connection is there. What are people's values? What are their desires? What are their goals? What are their interests? How do we take this into consideration? And how do we use this to be able to, let's just say it honestly in the corporate world, pad the bottom line, right? Or when I was working for the nonprofit organizations doing their passion point studies on donor gifts and allocations, like how are we going to get them from $5 to $25? Now, the reason I mentioned that number to you is actually for not just like anecdotal purpose. We've done studies at the company that I worked at formerly that when people give under $25, they see it as meaningless as mm -hmm. it's just kind of like handing someone $5 who's homeless asking for food. You're not going to go back to that person and give that money unless you saw them in a different situation. For some reason, that $25 mark adds a sense of importance or financial requirement. So people who give at least 25 on their first donation are more likely to be continuous, if not lifetime givers. And that's kind of what this passion point study can really show you is not only can we map people's personas and the way they act, interact, engage, look for. Passion point studies allow us to ask a list of questions that are contrived and thought through with operational definition for all people. Go back to your intro, whatever class, and remember the idea of how we ask something is more important than the question itself. And be able to figure out what is it that's going to find Dave, Steve, Jeff, Harry, Henry, Susan to keep going on this survey. And how do we find out how we can cater our marketing to you to have a better result? So I spent a majority of my career prior to academia doing this. My father, who is 72 years old, spent his entire time in the marketing world developing the concept of passion points and working down the path of like, what do you, how do we map someone's passion into their purchasing history? Where do we find that line? How do we connect that line? And being the son of a marketer, I was a marketer. And then I started realizing I was just literally, he was just replicating sociology because how do we take a group understanding and how do we map that to their wants, needs, and possessions, and objects, and thoughts, and passions, that's the name, and make that into a profitable or at least a social contrived idea that will be able to bring better results, if that makes sense. I really like that idea of the the twenty five dollar as a as a threshold, right, for investment, and that yeah. actually kind of I guess if I think about my own habits, there are 
some things that like I support, you know, a couple podcasts on Patreon, that kind of thing, where it's like 10 bucks a month. Same thing with like, you know, I use Marvel Unlimited, which is about 10 bucks a month, give or take. And we could obviously talk about like the streaming services as well. And yeah. that figure of like around 10 bucks, it does add up quite a bit. But individually, it's like, oh, OK, I mean, it's 10 bucks. It's whatever. Right. I mean, you know, you can, you can spare that. And then when those as, as many people have had, I have had this, this thought of like, when that number goes up, as it inevitably does, right, because of inflation or because of, you know, trying to, you know, even, get even more out of the clientele, things like that, particularly when we talk about streaming services, there is that reevaluation of investment, like, okay, well, how much do I actually get out of this, right? As we're approaching, mm -hmm. you know, like 20 bucks a month for a given streaming service, it's like, all right, well, do I really need to have it year round? Could this become like a, a seasonal thing? Because yeah. the truth is, whereas I may be emotionally invested and financially supporting like one of the podcasts that I give money to monthly, I don't have any of that emotional investment when it comes to things like, you know, my streaming services that I use for videos for, you know, watching TV or movies or whatever else. And not just because like torrenting exists, right? But because like <laughs> literally like the, the emotional relationship that I have with these companies, with these organizations and with the materials that they produce is just different. So yeah, I really like that idea that's interesting and it also kind of reminds me of if y'all recall when there was that push to use reusable straws or or not to use plastic straws right mm -hmm. and the rationale that i heard was yeah straws don't account for that much in terms of the actual volume of plastic pollution i mean yeah the there's the we've a lot of people have seen the the videos of like the sea turtles that have like the straw stuck in the nose and things like that. And that tugs on the heartstrings and that's a component of it. But also because that is a, I forget the terminology they used for it, but in this explanation, like that is a behavior that if you can modify it, it is going to increase the likelihood of, of one accepting the idea of ecological conservation as a part of self-concept, as a part of identity, right? That is who you are. And also is likely to increase the likelihood of adopting other behaviors, right? That may have a more meaningful impact, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, that does make sense. It's absolutely, we can pull the heartstrings, but that's fine. But are you actually connecting to what people, what drives people, what they're connected to? What is the kind of zeitgeist that they're putting to? And then that also changes generation, right? I spent a majority of my career looking at generational fashion points. How do we map this? How do we look at this? What are millennials buying patterns? Sorry, Gen X, no one ever studied you, so we don't know. Baby boomers. <laughs> I actually ended up making quite a few dollars from writing white papers on the Gen X social experience because, you know, now we're starting to realize like, hey, you know, maybe we should study these people. They are going to be a buying power soon. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But hey, no, don't worry. They still forgot. Uh, <laughs> It's, I imagine, I mean, the joke is that, you know, the Gen X could have done anything if they just cared, right? So I wonder about that in terms of marketing as well. Well, I never forgotten. And I mean, I've read all of the famous books, The Lost Generation, all this. It's so great, though, because a lot of their entire generational persona was feeling angsty and driven by this. They were the last generation right to ever be truly taught American exceptionalism. They were the same generation with the Berlin Wall. They have this idea of wanting to go out and move to like lo remote locations. They're the latchkey kids. So it, it's a fascinating conversation because a lot of their identity was not wanting to be studied. And guess what? You didn't get studied. So <laughs> there mm -hmm. you go. So millennials just got their avocado toast and then got made fun of. And now we're looking at the silver tsunami coming in. So, you know, fair fun. If you don't know the silver tsunami, it's uh -uh. Like parents are coming back in. Inflation has hit baby boomers hard and it's looking like they might have to come back and live with their parents. So I, I, mm -hmm. I put that in my class all the time and watch my Gen Z kids cry as they're like, I just got out of home. 
Wait, 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 wait. The idea that the parents are moving in with the kids? Uh, so, yeah, essentially the silver tsunami is that baby boomers' fiscal realities are not holding to what they thought they would be with the inflation, the economy. And it's a big issue that there is a huge resurgence. So boomerang kids, you might know that term, the parent yeah. goes to college, comes back home. We're looking at a tsunami of silver, meaning the baby boomers coming back in. I, I like to combine the idea of the boomerang generation of what happened when they accused of like millennials, right? Leaving the house, coming back, that kind of thing with Foucault's boomerang of imperialism. So, right, the the tactics that a army uses overseas, they then use in insurgency in their home nation. And so <laughs> those of us who are jacked up by our own parents, when we come back home, we're using those same tactics. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, did you just give me a walk-in to go into Foucault? Oh, thank you, sir. No, 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 no. Do not give me a sociologist. Listen, listen, this is a strictly uh, non-continental philosophy circa the 1960s podcast, all right? That is, we don't have many rules, but we have that one, all right? I don't want to hear Althusser, I don't want to hear Derrida or Baudrillard or any of them other fancy names. No, I mean, that's fine. I was going to say, one of my biggest things, because I have to tie this, I have to take it, you can kick me off if you want, but the panopticism has never been more relevant in the side of- No, that's true. Of the idea of you want to look at passion points, you want to look at the idea of social science and marketing. Like what has happened is that we have created this actual virtual real panoptic- panopticon of the social media. What's fascinating though, when you look at like, so passion points are driving what people are uh, driven by, right? So Gen Z has been so hyper consumptive by having their phone on them at all times that they've become, from my experience in my interview, my questions with them, they don't care about the panopticon. They are f- perfectly fine with being monitored and observed. They think it's super silly, ha, 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 that if they're in a class, their entire TikTok feed is now whatever they're talking about. Side note, don't teach sociology and have TikTok. My feed is so weird. Uh, <laughs> but like, for example, here's a point. Uh, Gen Z is strongly driven by the desire for adventure. So how would you take this? How would you take something on this idea of adventure? You, we would market on the constructions of FOMO, right? So then you start putting ads out that are tying to the fear of missing out if you don't know the acronym. And then we're able to kind of tie this passion is that they want to have adventure. And maybe this stirs from two years of being locked in the pandemic. You know, a lot of their general socialization period was not being able to go out during the times, you know, whenever my students talk, they're like in freshman, mm-hmm. sophomore year, that was COVID. So now I'm back here in junior year in class and I'm loving it. So there's a lot of their normifications and passions and drivens driven by this idea of how do we have an adventurous structure? You know, a lot of millennials, a lot of our dynamics have varying types of degrees, but we were very much touched as children realizing that bad shit could happen at any time, right? So sure, yeah. there's this out there's and there's this element of gallows humor with gents with uh, the millennial generation, like, you know, okay, wow, we're in another another once in a lifetime crisis. Cool. So I'm going right. to go home and just continue because life just keeps exploding. <laughs> so well, it, it also, I think about in terms of the, the generational, generational changes and the things that, you know, we, we really truly care about the idea of, cause community has always been important, right. in the way mm-hmm. in which it manifests and that kind of thing, the way in which we access it. And as a friend of mine likes to put it, you know, for millennials, we weren't the, we weren't the first people on the internet, but we were the first generation from the internet. But in that same vein, we still also had to rely a lot on interpersonal, like physical, like uh, Mm in-person communication, as opposed to mass mediated or digital, especially when you consider things like the digital divide, access to resources, things like that. And for Gen Z, that is dramatically changing. Obviously, there are still people who are on the other side of the digital divide who don't have access to the Internet in the ways that so many of us take for granted. But still, that pervasiveness, like 
I wonder about, and I'm speaking anecdotally here. I know people mm-hmm. in their twenties, for example, right? Like my siblings and other people that they grew up with where driving wasn't, it was a big deal, but it wasn't as big a deal as it was say for my generation because they could get a lot more interpersonal contact digitally, right? With their friends and they saw each other at school. They would, you know, text or Skype or things like that. But like for me, if I wanted to see my friends outside of school, I could try to text on my Nokia Firefly, right? With the with the one to nine and zero pad where you have to cycle through each number, right? To to rat it out. Nice. But we didn't Yeah, right. But but we didn't have we didn't have online gaming, at least not at that not to the extent that it is now. We had to be in person. Right. Land land parties at someone's house. Right. It was much more interpersonal of going to someone's place. mm -hmm, 16 teenagers crammed into a basement playing Halo and making it lag so badly that the rockets were freezing in midair. Kind of. Yeah. As the good Lord intended, sir. As the good Lord intended. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's also fascinating exactly what you said that there was this anecdotal situation here. Like I remember the first time I faced male jealousy and it was because if I wanted to see my best friend, Danny, who lived three blocks the other direction, I had to bike over to his house and see if his bike was in the front. And I remember one time I saw another person's bike was in the front. And that's when I first learned that he had another best friend, that whore, how dare he? Right. But like now you run into the same dynamic multiplied into a nuanced version of structure. Right. So now we're running into a situation where, you know, you see your friend tag another friend on an Instagram post. So it's the same thing repeating itself, right? It's a famous mm-hmm. quote by Heigl, right? History's bound to repeat itself. And then Marx famously corrected him and said the first time is a tragedy, the second time is a farce. So you go down this path of like, we have the same constructions, but digitally they've just changed, right? And going back mm-hmm. into marketing, the famous concepts of marketing, right? The five Ps, product, price, promotion, place, and people becomes a big deal. Well, we still have these constructions. They've just changed. And they've gone into it. We need to know and you can use passion points to get, well, what is the product? How is it understood by others? And I'll kind of, I gave you this in the last example, but it's a great one. So when I was building Motives Met, that's the tool name that I built with my last company that my former colleague, other director of research now runs that company, Motives Met. They're going in realizing, you've heard this anecdote. I didn't leave my job. I left my manager, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. What I, what I wanted to explore when I was reverse engineering these tools and using passion point studies to be able to map the concepts here, reverse engineering algorithms was, okay, I'd heard that a lot in my sales world. And I can agree. I used to work for realtor.com. I vibe with them, but I worked in a literal shark tank. Like it was crazy. I saw 60 people get fired in one day, one time, just like these things happen. So you go down this path of, well, how do I find out what John Smith or John McQueen in this situation really wants to do. Well, John doesn't work as well as Susan. Susan is more like hands off and I don't have to worry about her, but he needs more attention. Okay. So we'll add, well, maybe we'll just fire John and find another Susan. Well, you're losing productivity. So passion point then goes in the idea of how do we match people to their motives and how are those motives met to increase corporate or individual institution, nonprofit growth. And that's kind of what we built this from. And the joke is that we mm-hmm. built this tool for a company that was a mega church, can't go names, NDA. But we built uh-huh. it for them because they found that, this is that I told you before, was that the guy who was a CM, was a chief marketing officer or a chief, any of the C positions would come to the church. And then they'd ask him to do like the books, the marketing, the accounting. And the person would be like, never mind, and stop coming to church, only come to service, never help. What he really wanted to do, this is an actual case, was drive the bus. He wanted to get off work and drive hmm. the bus. So how do we build these passion points to mirror or mimic and understand what is the person's passion when they're not working their nine to five? 
what are they really wanting to do? What do you want to do when you get off of your job teaching? Are you wanting to hop on podcasts and talk very probably, but are you also wanting to maybe like watch some movies, make fun of people getting mad at your videos? Like what is your real passion? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Gabriel's my real passion. I don't make a weird Barry. Don't, don't (laughs) listen. (laughs) Why do you think I do this for free, Gabriel? Listen, I, I, see, I I found his passion point. Look, I, I, I collect, you know, broken white boys like I'm Wakanda. All right. Look, but even I have my limits. (laughs) Barry, we've been collected. We're found. I'm, I'm just happy. I feel honored to be part of Gabriel's collection. He's the collector, like the movie, the horror movie. <laughs> I hate both of you so much right now. <laughs> you are no, the but, passion point. <laughs> so, so it sounds like one of the, and if I'm being a bit nefarious here or, or cynical in my approach, but it does sound a bit like, you know, trying to, how do we make people feel warm and fuzzy about generating surplus labor? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. At the core but, of all capitalism is how do I make you feel like it's good while I'm robbing you? How do I get you to thank me for making you do stuff for me? Yeah, isn't that isn't I, that just called the model minority myth? No, I mean like yeah, right. I mean it's the how do I how do I how do I run your pockets and get you to thank me for it? Right, like that's that's absolutely the case. So okay, so I'm it, it's interesting what you're talking about because this does re- require a, a quite a bit of. An understanding of motivation and motivation is really hard to to pin down so much so that when it comes to like media analysis, we discard motivation entirely because it's it's from our perspective difficult to accurately assess unless Mm -hmm. you do it. That's its own kind of study. Right. In that vein, though, I wonder about like, do you ever come across passion points that. That are perplexing or confusing or or things that like really catch you off guard. Absolutely. So a lot of the reality is when you're doing light, when you're doing surveys, right? So a lot of our passion points would combine a mixture of open-ended and closed-ended. For those of you not familiar, right? That's like write your own answer. And that's the other one's like putting a Likert scale for the closed-ended, right? Like we're not trying to make, we're trying to ask you quant and qualitative messages. And then we would ask a question. And then depending how you answered that, you'd have a follow-up question. And so we would go through and we'd cater these questions to operationally define what we're looking to ask. And then you get a lot of people who would show disinterest or dissatisfaction or satisfaction in the dirty trick of marketing is that we're going to focus on if i can what we, pause you i'm yeah. sorry if i can just pause you for a moment we've used the term operational a couple of times and it occurs to me that for people who are not familiar with that operational means a particular de- definition or meaning of a word or phrase or in result in a very specific context right so like the example i use is heavy viewership and they to operationalize heavy viewership of tv within a the theory of media ecology means people who consume four or more hours so that when and i say that because four or more hours a day and i say that because when you're talking about these studies you're talking about very specific goals right for understanding a human phenomenon so i just want to throw that out there when you hear operational when you hear operational when the audience hears operational that's what we're talking about it's a very narrow definition according to a very uh, strict set of parameters Absolutely. You, my students would like you better because I go on these tangential rants. And at one point I just kept using the word quintiles, which is very sociologically structured, right? Like small groups of people. And I had Uh a student raise their hand in the middle of class in a foreign person room, brave soul, appreciate him. Okay. What the hell is a quintile? And I was like, nice. So you know, like how those brackets (laughs) of society, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. But that's a good point. I usually use the example, if I asked everyone in this Zoom, let's say, are you a good driver? You're likely to all raise your hand. But what if I asked how many tickets have you had in the past year and then use that as a cross example of the average ticket for a good driver, right? Like the question I'm asking you is a loaded question, but I'm asking it in the sense that I'm specifying how I'm writing it, right? So I'm specifying mm -hmm. these passion point questions to match the constructions that we want with a little bit of open-endedness to provide nuance and new insight. But passion points of looking into it are always going to be structured around, get, like, like you said, we're, we're dancing while also pickpocketing you, right? We're trying to figure mm -hmm. out how can we take this message for the better of it, sure, to be able to reach certain groups. Uh, but we're trying to figure out how do we align that which you find motivates you into what we can get you to buy, what we can get you to look at, or with the nonprofit work that we're doing. So, right, my favorite mis misnomer is saying nonprofit when it's not for profit since they make a lot of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, Goodwill has a CEO. Oh, yeah, and a board, and a board's <laughs> yeah. director. When I used to work for think tanks, 200, $300 million life donations I would see when I did a 30 year mm -hmm. analysis. Again, no names because I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> so. Listen, we can't, we can't go into your work for but. I'm sorry, <laughs> Schmock, Heach, Martin, and, and Faithion. Pardon me. <laughs> I like Faithion. It's great. But no, so we, we're basically building these constructions. I would build them up, and we, we found these different passion point questions through years and years of trial and error of going through what works here, what works there, how do we get this? And then we would use this. So when we were doing the work for the mega church, we found that option. We're like, okay, so that kind of validates what we're saying, that you know, Steve working as a CMO doesn't want to do the marketing at Lolo's church, right? Great. So that makes sense. So we found that connection and started asking questions to people in companies. And this is kind of what my colleague is now doing, uh, former colleague, is that they are running these companies on, you can make a more productive company if you start looking at how motives are met inside the workforce. We can stop the manager making everyone leave. We can get the company to match what you're looking for. Maybe you're a laissez-faire uh, person who needs no one to work with you. Maybe you need more structure. Maybe we need to train our management to be able to have a multitude of different ways of approaching people so that you can have more productivity rather than have to deal with more hiring and firing. So passion points provide that ability to be able to look at people's wants, needs, and desires. Same with psychographic marketing when you're talking about looking at gender, race, and ethnicity, culture. These things all play into the decisions of how we buy, why we buy, where we buy. Knowing that you're producing a product, and let's say you're putting it in the heavily Latinx population and it's a very white-centered product, it's not going to sell. And then if it did sell, you would need to be able to prove why. Right. And then that kind of goes into Thorstein Babelin's idea of there are things that are conspicuous consumption or Baudois idea of fields or the habitus. Right. So you get on this path of how do we tie these constructions? How do we match passions to projects? And if we can match someone's passion, then they buy it because they want it, because it matches their goals. We don't have to worry mm -hmm. about pumping it. Right. We don't have to have that quick selling snake oil salesman, like you said. So yeah. it becomes kind of a goal. And one of the things that comes to mind is, and you've mentioned like, you know, targeting like a Latinx demographic, that kind of thing for marketing, even the use of the term Latinx is going to yep. engender some, some interest and also alienate other people, right? Because yes. that is a very contentious term. It's not nearly quite, I mean, there's a, there's a peer research study that is yep. really good, but also gets horribly mangled in the, in the day-to-day, -day, you know, recitation of it. About only 3% of Latinos use Latinx, that kind of thing, which is a misnomer. It's not actually that. That was 3% of people who are aware of it actively use it. But the actual people who are aware of it and have either neutral or positive feelings towards it is actually much larger. But I say that because when thinking about like the ways in which because identity construction is a form of marketing, particularly when we're talking about nonprofit organizations or for-profit organizations or things like that, right? It is a way of 
who that comes from says is going to absolutely impact that one thing that comes to mind for example is like the nfl and their use of the iconography for breast cancer awareness right mm-hmm. the pink ribbons all that kind of stuff same thing with like you know the the lgbtq community and pride month with the nfl and things like that and when it, if it's one thing if it comes from like say a nonprofit that is an advocacy organization right that's trying to say okay we want to raise money for uh people to get tested for for mammograms for you know breast cancer or what have you or you know we're doing advocacy work for you know homeless youth homeless queer youth that kind of thing as opposed to the nfl which has a really, if I'm being charitable, I'd say it's spotty, but if I'm being honest, a miserable track record, right, with people in the queer community as well as, you know, the treatment of women by players, right? So, or the treatment of women in general, when you talk about like the, the cheerleaders and, and things like that. So, yeah, it, even using the right terminology, even using the quote unquote winning formula, as is often the case when it comes to marketing or with, with you know, these sort of appeals, it it can change significantly based on who it's coming from, right? And so mm-hmm. that makes you can identify a passion point, but then you got to think about like how is that being packaged? Yeah, yeah. I uh, want you make you bring a good point when you mentioned this is exactly like I actually talk about the Pew study you're talking about, and then go into deeper conversations because you can also go in Chicano and Chicano conversation. You can go in the other representation. When I'm on my class during race and ethnicity, and I bring that up as a point of contention in class and see if anyone's willing to talk about it. Mum's the word, right? In an intro class, no one wants to say anything because they're terrified. Oh, yeah. But the better part is, is like the one I've had a few of my favorite students who have you shouldn't have favorites, right? Like parents shouldn't have favorite kids, but we all find them. We have favorite <laughs> students, absolutely. No, oh, 100%. Yeah. they take all my classes; they're great. But the ones who speak up in the class usually be that person. And like when a long debate was my favorite intro class I ever taught, where we really went into that. And like she brought up the idea of like you know I'm aware that in academia they just say Latinx, but isn't that just another whitewashing of the term? Trying to not want to know who we're going to say. And I was just like. I mean, now you're part of the conversation of what Pew was looking at because stats are great. Everyone always points to that numbers and they're like, well, I don't feel that way. I'm like, well, where are you in the sample? Right? Like Jackson Katz, if you're familiar with him, is one of my favorite savages on this topic when he points out that like 99.5% of rapes are done by men, right? To women. And then they'll be like, he'll do like the one and two argument, right? And then there'll be two people sitting in a room like me and my friend both don't do it. And he goes, great. Do you understand how stats work? I hope you don't keep doing it, but you know, you're not a part of the sample. So therefore, right. you don't, you don't count. But whenever people talk about like the, you know, Latinx is whitewashing, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's made up by, by, you know, people in, in higher education and, and academia and stuff. It's like, well, do you think there's no Latinos in higher education? Exactly. Do, do you think that none of us are here, you know, as it were? But yeah. Well, according to yeah, institutional yeah. racism, you have a lot more of me. <laughs> Listen, you know I'm a day, I'm a day walker. I can walk among you and some people don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I appreciate when I get on stage and I make the reference how back in the day, what was in the 1800s, 1700s, Irish, because of our Protestant background, our Catholic background, weren't allowed to consider be white. And I'm like, if colorism isn't a thing, please explain why I reject literally light back at you because I stand in front of them. <laughs> and so then I just go down the, race, the social construction of race. And then I'm like, but the, it might be a social construction, but it's oppressed the shit out of people. So like, let's just have a better conversation around this. Okay. But right. you reminded me of your example of media, right? So there's a big debate and there's different sides on this. So I'm not going to say either side one here, there or there, but a lot of the indigenous communication about the change from the boss to the Boston Braves was also done in the sense of a lot of white officials trying to get rid of this idea of the name because they didn't want to have anything that could be temporarily offensive with 
the Redskin name originally, right? So mm -hmm. I was in my intro class and I brought that conversation up and I had a bunch of indigenous kids in my student class, which is amazing, go into a long form debate about how they preferred the name Redskins regardless because they become used to it. So, but then the others go like, well, you know, these Braves is trying to be less insensitive. And they're like, how so? They didn't really change this. And like, they were going back and forth. My favorite moment is as a professor and just sit up and like, I'm just not going to talk. How long will this go? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that comes but, down and, to passion for whom is the better question. Like what is what? Yeah. And, and passion points. I also think about as being anachronistic. And so the, what comes to mind, for example, is like going back to the example of the Washington Redskins, that logo was designed by a native American man and, and who I believe was a social justice act activist. And so he designed that. And then his grandson, <clears throat> his grandson, when they changed it said yeah it served a purpose in a particular moment in time right that is no longer the case and so while that might have been a part of the quest for visibility at that you know moment in time when it was developed that is no longer how that is no longer the lay of the land so to speak right and so that that desire uh for visibility changes the manifestation of it changes so when i think about going back to you know passion points and what we have an interest in and what motivates us and things like that whether or not the actual underlying fundamental components of them are enduring or long lasting, certainly the expressions of that, the manifestations in time and space are going to change based on context. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the, the church that we did the research for, you know, we felt their, their involvement in community service because you're tying it to this biblical need to give tithe. Uh, it ended up going much higher because they really didn't realize that Steve, the CMO, didn't want to be a CMO of the church. He wanted to drive the darn bus because he thought that was fun. And once they started looking at that, you know, I didn't do much follow-up afterwards because we developed it for them and then went otherwards. But <clears throat> every time we employed passion points, I mean, that's where we saw the ROI come back in, the ARR, the annual reoccurring revenue, uh, return on investment for those of you who are familiar with the acronym, always went up because if you take the qualitative, and this is, I'm a big qualitative person, so bias established. If you take the idea of looking into why people respond this way and figure out that what works for Jan's not going to work for Steve, let alone anyone else, it goes into a lot of other conversations, right? Like even if you want to do Crenshaw's version of CRT, get on the path of understanding everyone's lived experience, you have to take in despite of every circumstance to understand what people go through, right? So mm -hmm. if we do passion points, we have to have an idea of why does this work? Whom does it work for? And what is the message behind this? And that's when you start writing those questions in the surveys and in the analysis and breaking down the data, presenting the facts of this is what we're seeing. This is what we can offer your company, whether it's profit or nonprofit, right? And if we take this information, you're going to probably have a better return. And going back to way back to the beginning, that's why that $25 mark matters. It, it, you, you maintaining a $10 membership is great, but do you have an emotional attachment to it? And that's where you start going down the path. But to get mm -hmm. $25, you might have to have an emotional attachment. And people will be like, wow, 25 doesn't seem like a crazy number. I'm like, that's the point. That little significant jump from 10 to 25, now you have to make a conscious decision. I, John, want to maintain this membership, which means now it's a part of me. It's not just an extra spender. I don't, it's not going to be on that list of things that those websites say that I can cut to make my monthly bill go lower. Because at 25, I was like, wow, I care about this product. I want to maintain yeah. this product. I build a passion and a loyalty to it. When I, I think that's an excellent point to end on, bringing it full circle back to that original example. So with that being said, John, is there anything in particular that you want to touch on that we didn't have a chance to? Just that I think that we need to take consideration of when we look at these brands that are approaching us on TikTok, social media, and all these places, pay attention to what they're looking and the kind of ways that they're approaching you. Because passion point marketing, as beautiful as I think it can be, is also very easily manipulative. 
finding ways mm. to kind of go down that path of how do I lock you into this? How do I make you feel emotions on it? But also to understand that studying the human groups and the processes and the ways that we all interact with intersectionality is so quintessentially important for the future. And we need to have an understanding of what makes people not only buy, but what, what do we care about? Because we're running into a collective consciousness of like, not thinking together and we have to not always think like a hive we have to think what's going to build the better for us and what brand works for who. when you're talking about that being manipulative that reminds me of so i went down a prager you rabbit hole the other day because you know i heard about the videos and whatnot and i thought okay let me let me take a look at these and and they're they are less than ideal we'll say <laughs> In fact, we deconstructed a couple in class and my, most of my students were like, what is this? Right now, <laughs> now, because of that, I get advertisements for like similar products and services and things like that, including a, a list or, or a company that sells homeschool materials mm-hmm. for children specifically and their marketing. I haven't read the books at some point. I would like to just to kind of like see, you know, how they're going about this, but the the advertising approach they're using is absolutely leveraging anti-government and culture war sentiment very much dressed up in a emotionally pastel way for lack of a better term right like it's not it doesn't appear very threatening it doesn't seem very like hostile other than some jabs at like some stuff that's going on but it's not like you know the government's trying to brainwash the kids it's like so it's a guy wearing you know a shirt that says i don't co-parent with the government and then talking about the value of learning american education those kind of things right so but that so and that speaks to what are very legitimate concerns about you know one's the education of your child, right? Or if you're responsible for any kind of, you know, young person, whether that's your own kid or, or someone else's. So anyway, that kind of comes to mind. That being said, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> Otherwise, we just won't stop. So, John, where can people find you if you want to be found? Yeah, if you're looking to follow, you can go ahead and I have an Instagram account that I run for sociology. It's at the sociology cat. So the underscore sociology underscore cat. If you want to follow that, that'd be awesome. I post sociological memes. I'm getting more and more active, but if you want to find me there, you're welcome to do so. And if you are in Arizona and want to drop by into my classes, I teach on a regular basis at the Arizona State University. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. And of course, if anyone wants to hear more of this foolishness, they can uh, find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and I'm not even going to try to make a joke. It's Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Cruz underscore PhD. And, you know, share us with your friends and enemies. <laughs> Hate, share us. You know, look, a listen is a listen. Download is download. The quantitative methodologies for calculating those rates do not take into account whether or not you actually like or the person likes what they hear just that they hit the button. Right. Anyway, but thanks for dropping by the office. We'll catch you all next week. Bye.